Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Mind Body Musings podcast. I am your host, Maddie Moon, and I'm so excited to present another amazing, exceptional guest today on the show, Sarah Joy Marsh. I hope you all had the most terrific 4th of July holiday and you enjoyed watermelon and Moscow mules and fireworks and family and the lake or lounging, whatever floats your boat. I hope you got to enjoy it on the holiday um, and that you're back in the swing of things for the nice hot, hot heat of summer. I am working on a lot of things behind the scenes, actually. Um some of them to name a few. I've just finished my second book and that is going to be published very soon, probably in the next couple months. Um, It's going to be another Kindle book. I'm really excited about this one. It's going to be a little different from anything I've ever done before. Same typical genre that I like to talk about, but it's going to be going into a lot more detail into the specifics of the crazy nutty things that I did during my obsessive days and some of my Um, deeper thoughts about my own body image struggles. So it's going to be a lot of stories. This book is a collection of stories by me. Um, That one's going to be released soon, so stay tuned on all of my social media channels, on my podcasts, on my blog. Just be on my newsletter because that's where I'm going to be announcing all the different things going on in my life, which are a lot right now. I'm going through a really big transitional phase, but that's one of the really cool things that I'm working on I'm just really excited to be able to get this book out and share it with you. But as I'm publishing this one, I'm actually going to be working on another one. This one I will not be sharing the details about quite yet. But this one is going to be the third one that I'm going to release this year. It's going to be amazing. It's not just about me. It's about a lot of awesome women. So stay tuned for that. Since I'm publicly announcing it, you better bet your bottom's dollar it's going to be released and it's going to be out there. And this one is going to just be a treasure for all women to hold on to when they feel lost and full (laughs) bless me full of grief and just really struggling with their own body dysmorphia or eating disorders um, perfectionism orthorexia obsession addiction whatever it is that you're suffering through this book is going to help you with it so Enough about that. I also have some more... As you can see, I am still recovering from the cold that I had at the beach that I told you about the other week, which wasn't all that fun. And I'm still going through it, but hopefully it'll be clearing up soon. Um, What I was going to say is that I have more news that's going on, so make sure you just follow me on my social media channels, because that's typically where that I release these things as soon as possible in my newsletter. Um, Those are the best ways to stay in contact with me and to know what I'm going through. And sometimes I just don't feel ready to share things on podcasts. For some reason, writing it out feels a little bit better sometimes just because I can express myself exactly how I want to. So make sure you're on my newsletter list so you can follow me there. Uh, That's maddiemoon.com slash newsletter. And as always, you will get a free book with uh, signing up called 10 Proven Steps for Ending Any Diet Obsession. Very helpful book and I hope you love it. So let's go ahead and do the review of the week. Today's review of the week is five stars, and it comes from Kenzie at stronglikemycoffee.com. She says, um, Miss Maddie Moon equals inspiring. Love the content of these podcasts in such a great interview format. These are applicable to everyone, but especially those of us who have lives that center around health and fitness. A beautiful reminder that healthy does not necessarily mean extreme nutrition and fitness regimens. Ah, 
That review is amazing. Thank you so much. This made my day. That's exactly the kind of goal that I'm trying to put out into the world. Our lives do not need to center around trivial concerns such as weight loss, perfection, or how we measure up to the rest of our society, our fitness. So thank you so much for sharing that. Every time you leave a review, you are helping someone else find my podcast. And I'll probably mention you on this show if you leave a review. So more incentive. Um, So today's show, we're talking with Sarah Joy Marsh. A sought-off teacher of teachers with a master's in counseling, Sarah Joy has been training yoga teachers, yoga outreach volunteers, and mental health providers, including clinical psychologists and social workers, and yoga therapy tools for 26 years. Her teachings are informed by personal life events, including serious injury from a car accident resulting in a hip replacement at 42 and early life struggles with disordered eating behaviors. In her book, Hunger, Hope, and Healing, which I read, and it's fabulous. She fuses yoga with psychology, neuroscience, breathing interventions, and mindfulness techniques to bring readers with disordered eating and body image issues a practical and accessible guide to recovery. Absolutely love this book from what I have read. I've read about half of it now. Um, This book is phenomenal. It's one that I've even recommended to a few clients already. She uses this really interesting blend of Um, healing through yoga with practical things you can do in your day-to-day life but she also infuses gratitude and hope and how she herself went through the experience of disordered eating and found that hope and how her tool was yoga and your tool can be anything but she gives you a lot of really amazing basic poses and reasons for doing these poses to get started with healing yourself from your own disordered eating thinking, mindset, and body image. So definitely get a copy of this book. You can get the link to this book on the show notes to this episode. Um, you can go to maddiemoon.com mbm57. And I'm ready for this show. How about you? Let's get started. Welcome to the Mind Body Musings podcast. The show for everyone and anyone that is ready to break free from the dogmatic chains of the health and fitness industry and create their own life free from restrictions. Now, introducing your host, Madeline Moon, a former fitness model gone sane and the author of the popular self-love book, The Perfection Myth. If you dig the show and you're looking for more insight on how to stop food and exercise from controlling your life, check out her website, maddiemoon.com, and grab your free guide. If you're ready to end dieting once and for all, it's time you learn how to pursue real health instead. Enjoy the show. Is it Sarah Joy or Sarah, and then you added the joy? Was it always Sarah Joy? It was always Sarah Joy. That yeah. is incredible. What a <laughs> unique name. Like, that's a really special name. Yeah. Well, my parents call me Jill. I mean, when oh. I say it's always been Sarah Joy, it's ever since I arrived at the name Sarah Joy, it's been Sarah Joy. And the name Sarah Joy came to me in a dream when I was recovering from my own disordered eating pattern and graduating from college master my master's degree program and I was about to head off into the world to go backpacking and explore the world unhindered by things and the name Sarah Joy came in a dream and I thought well I'll use that no one else knows me on the planet right now where I'm going 
And so I used the name Sarah Joy while I was traveling and I didn't go back to the name Jill. Oh, that is so cool. Well, I love it. I, I fully support that name. I think it's so pretty. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so your book, Hunger, Hope, and Healing, I have been reading it for the past months. I've been going to the park, and I've been taking it with me. I've been listening to interviews you've been doing. And I have even recommended this book already to about three clients. So I am a full supporter of this book. I love your book. And for a lot of different reasons, I think that – in your book, you compile a lot of different strategies that people can actually put into action, which I think is really needed in a lot of our recovery, self-improvement, um, disordered eating books, because a lot of times it just t- books talk about like the beauty of healing, but not necessarily the nitty gritty, the ins and outs. And what you do in yours is you give people action steps and ways to practice these things in physical ways, like through yoga and Yoga has uh, always kind of seemed like a way to heal yourself, but now it just all kind of came together when I was reading your book on how yoga actually can heal you through um, disordered eating and the and body image struggles. Yeah, it was that was my intention with the book is if I'm going to write something and I'm not going to be in the physical company of the reader, how do I most convey a sense of hope about the process? And one of those things is a feeling that you can do something. You can change your physiology. You can, what I call, upregulate towards a more optimistic state, or you can downregulate towards a more grounded state. And you can do both. But how are you going to do it besides just reading words on a page? What are you going to put into action? Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and rewind and go into your background. Before we get started talking the book, because I do want to talk about that more, tell us how you got to where you are today and some of the struggles that you faced when you were younger. Well, I was a competitive athlete and a high-performing musician and student in school. I, I mean, I excelled in every area that I was required to excel. And I say required with that emphasis because I really felt it was a requirement that I, I had to be A+, plus and I had to be extraordinary trying to get the attention of people who mattered. Uh, that is, my parents or my teachers or my sports coach. I was really hungry for acknowledgement, and I felt that the way to get that was to be excellent or to be extraordinary in what I was doing. So I was competitive and driven and perfectionistic. Underneath that, I was anxious and lonely and confused and overwhelmed. I kept performing because I knew how to do that. I didn't know how to feel anxious, lonely, or overwhelmed, so I, I just put that aside. And most frequently, I put that aside by restricting food and increasing exercise patterns. And when that started to fall apart and I found myself binging, I felt more despairing than I had ever thought possible. So my ability to excel in food restriction and compulsive exercise started to wane, particularly when I moved from home off to graduate school. And I went to art school and then graduate school within a couple of years' time of each other. And I I wasn't really entirely prepared for either one of those things. But when I was in that process of despair and then uh, perfectionism again, despair and perfectionism, like uh, despair is binging, perfectionism is restricting, that was so life-deadening and so overwhelming that I just felt, like, what's the purpose of going on? And I recall just feeling tremendously isolated and uniquely uh, pained about my circumstances. 
So that led me to some pretty intensive research into the field of, do other people have these issues? Are there books out there? Is there any source of help for me out there? And I did end up one time calling a hospital asking for help because I didn't really know what else to do. And that particular visit to the ER to talk to the hospital doctors was so unhelpful. They were so unprepared. This was back in the late 80s, early 90s. And the conversations were not robust at that time. So that being an unhelpful juncture actually proved to be really a great catalyst for me to say to myself, something has to be done. And I suppose I'll have to discover it on my own. And that led to research into like backpacking and going off into nature to find out what life is like that isn't about competition. And I did discover some other books that I could read and that felt like comforting to me. And I transferred from art school to art therapy school, looking for therapy of my own. At the time, art therapy was a very unknown field. And those of us who were studying art therapy would often get questions from friends and family members like, are you planning to be a therapist for artists? But art therapy is the process of using art as a therapy, using the mediums of art as a therapeutic tool. And I discovered soon into that that hiking was also the process of therapy. And when I was out on my first rigorous hiking event, I, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. This is the opening story from my book. I essentially put myself under great duress to go on this hiking event and overpacked a backpack and hiked to the top of a steep mountain and was kind of in drudgery most of the hike up the steep mountain until I got to the top of the mountain and I found myself willing to put down the backpack and the burdens that I had been carrying. And with a couple moments of ease, I lifted my gaze to see that around me at the top of this mountain was something expansive and awe-inspiring that was not about body management or food restriction or exercise compulsion. It was like life suddenly looked really beautiful and possible. And when I saw that, I thought, that's what I want. I want to feel the way that I feel looking at this. Of course, I wasn't planning to live at the top of a mountain, so I had to find a way to incorporate what I experienced there into my life. And in those moments of experiencing awe, I spontaneously felt that I would stretch my body and provide some sense of ease, which became a conversation I could keep having with my body. Like, how can I provide ease and nourishment and not be so embattled with myself? And that became my yoga practice, which then evolved into teaching yoga. I graduated with an art therapy degree and I started incorporating yoga and art therapy. This was 20 years ago where, again, both of those fields were kind of unknown at the time. And now, 20 years later, yoga therapy is a viable professional field. I just graduated a group of trainees who did 550 hours of training. We have 33 local yoga therapists in the city of Portland now. And the field is expanding. People are turning to yoga therapy for all kinds of supports. And I happen to specialize in disordered eating, body image issues, body-centered self-hatred, PTSD, anxiety, and depression. Um, and I use yoga therapy and and my own life journey to help inspire other people. So whenever you were on that mountain and you had that moment of realization, how soon after that moment did you 
start investing your time into yoga therapy? Did you have like a lapse where it was you were trying to find that place mentally in your head when you came back down to the mountain where you just went back to that like excited, uh, hopeful place? And then you would have moments where you felt body image struggles and depression or binge eating. And then you've soon found yoga. Am I making sense in this question? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I didn't know when I was at the top of that mountain that I was doing yoga. It wasn't, I wasn't a science or practice that I understood or had any exposure to. But what I did feel when I was stretching at the top of that mountain was that something felt better enough that I was willing to keep doing that. And I had been using exercise to manage my emotions and my body weight and composition and to manage if I'd overeaten or binge eat, uh, I would use exercise to manage that. I didn't think of stretching as exercise because it didn't seem to be burning any calories. So I didn't end up incorporating that as one of my self-medicating strategies. I I used it more for self-soothing. And somehow... Being at the top of that mountain, it occurred to me that I deserved a bit of soothing, even though I was also capable of torturing myself mentally. Something changed where I thought, yeah, soothing is like really important for me. I'm working so hard just to exist. It's not supposed to be like this. So when I got home from that backpacking trip, I was living in the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts and going to school near Harvard University at Lesley College. And I decided when I got home that I would stretch every day, that I would do something like I had done at the top of the mountain. And while I did that, I did have to coexist with the ongoing struggles. They didn't dissolve right away. I still had body image issues. I still found myself using food to medicate or to manage stress. I still found myself restricting and over-exercising. I still felt more comfortable being hungry than being full. But I started stretching in a way that just took about 10 or 15 minutes every morning and set my mood to go to my school program and my um, job circumstances with a better sense of connection to myself. And that ended up helping me to prolong a binge episode or a compulsive exercise episode. Like I could delay it and then I realized some days I didn't need it. Other days, it didn't actually occur to me at all to think about doing those behaviors. And that was a surprise. I wasn't quite expecting it. I wanted to be free of those behaviors, but I didn't know that this little bit of stretching and providing soothing to my body could be so powerful. Yeah. What are some of the steps that you take people through? Say they're starting at the point where they're obsessed with exercise. They would say that they're addicted to exercise. They have to burn the calories in order to eat the food. What kind of steps do they need to start taking in order to get to where exercise is no longer um, a way that they can justify the food that they're eating? And it's not controlling their life. It doesn't have to be scheduled into their day. It's not the end-all, be-all anymore. Because this is a really long, long process. But what are some of the things people can start doing to get that kick-started? Yeah, well, there's several things I would say that you can choose from as starter places. Like, one is admitting to somebody else who's capable of compassion, empathy, and understanding. Like, actually admitting to that person, I'm struggling. So, in my book, I call this particular act 
one of the ways to end the isolation that shame perpetuates. So the moment I tell somebody else who's capable, again, of compassion, empathy, and understanding, I have to choose somebody with whom I can do that. The moment I tell her or him, I ease the sense of isolation and shame that I've been hiding behind or that's been overpowering me. So that's one thing is to loosen the grip that shame now has on our thinking. Another thing a person can do is to start looking at the relationship we have with the body as sustaining vitality or nourishing the fuel we actually need for the tasks at hand rather than a constant like overfilling the gas tank with foods that don't nourish and then trying to burn those foods by over-exercising and then restricting so that our blood sugar and our body chemistry is essentially off all the time. So if we want to do a better job of quote-unquote managing the calories and our body composition, we'll actually start using an attitude of self-nurturance rather than self-punishment or recrimination. So that attitude change, I would recommend, even if a person continues pursuing the same kinds of exercise, the attitude with which they do it can be transformed. And then we're moving into this relationship with food and exercise that's about nourishing not depleting, not punishing, not overwhelming the body. Because it'll start breaking down. I think we now know, you probably know this quite a bit more than I do, but exercise science is telling us that burning all these calories is not necessarily the effective way to change your metabolism. In fact, I've heard it said that four minutes of peak cardio exercise changes your metabolism better than three hours of treadmill time. So we have to start looking at the actual science of the body not just the conditioning we had about caloric intake and caloric burning. That is old science at this point, and not that nurturing to the body perspective. So those are two things a person can do right away. And the the third, of course, is pick up the book, (laughs) start reading Hunger, Hope, and Healing. And if you can relate to the story, my story, or the stories that are of the other women in the book, we can start feeling less alone and start building tools in the toolkit. Yeah, because I have always been a little bit, I've I've never really been a big fan of yoga for various reasons, personally, like a lot of times I would try it and then I'd be like, this isn't fast enough, this isn't fast paced, I need to go lift some iron because mentally my mind was like, this isn't a real workout and I was still addicted to the thought that I was doing a real workout. I needed that uh-huh. real workout for my, um, I don't know if it, it it was a sense of control. Like I could control that one hour, move my body exactly the way that I wanted to so that I could go eat food, you know? So I was trying to validate all of these food choices, but within the past, I would even say six months, I have had these realizations of what I'm doing. Like I've recovered in so many senses and so many aspects and respects for what I've gone through in the past few years, but there are still a little, a few things here and there. Like recently I wrote an article about, um, why I'm leaving CrossFit Uh and, you know, I really just dove into this article writing all the different reasons why I feel like CrossFit isn't serving me anymore. Uh, I want to feel more feminine. I don't necessarily need to lift weight anymore. I'm kind of just done with that stage for now. I don't know if I always will be, but for now I'm not a big fan of, feeling like I have to go hard or go home. And I know it wasn't fueling my business life either, like promoting nourishment. And then when I go into the gym, I feel like I'm not nourishing my body. So I took a step back and I've been doing um, 
uh, pole dancing <laughs> mm, and great. just, you know, a awesome, like awesome studio. And it's just really expressive. But I've also started doing yoga and it was great timing for getting your book because I was like, well, this is interesting. This is something that I can um, talk about on my show with her. And I will even try to experience it a little more myself because maybe since one thing is is ending, I can fill that time with something else. So I've been going to yoga more and I have been having it's just so awesome how different you know the same activity but different experiences because before my mind was racing all over the place and I wouldn't allow my body to indulge in the moment of just poses Mm -hmm. and now when I go in like last week I went into my studio that I've been going to with a problem on my mind and I left the yoga studio the yoga class with a solution like I felt in the moments of doing those poses and touching my legs and my body and breathing and changing the breathing patterns, I was having realizations naturally. I wasn't even like, think, think, think. It was just like, (laughs) relax. And then when he was like, "Um, think about what you want to gain from this practice, I was like, ha, you know, this naturally came to me. And then with my problem that I was dealing with, I naturally came up with a solution and I felt so calm. And the rest, the the next 40 minutes of the practice, I was just like so in the zone and it was such a nice feeling. I didn't leave thinking, what am I going to go eat? I left feeling like I didn't have to do anything, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I'm delighted to hear you say all that. It's it's a big shift from what I call in my book the deprivation reward or punishment reward mentality because the the reward part would have been the food you'd have after class but the the ruthlessness that we could exercise with that's more like the punishment part or I have to do this exercise before I can deserve that food for example. But what's so cool about yoga and what I found for myself is that when I'm practicing yoga, it does shift your biochemistry, it shifts your brain state, it shifts it away from this constant sense of fight, flight, freeze, or submit. And those are four reactions that our brain can have on our own behalf whenever we feel threatened, overwhelmed, or anxious. The brain has to decide how it's going to navigate those mind states for our basic survival so we can fight. That means we can be in conflict with ourselves or our lives. We can flee. We can use an escape hatch to get away from feelings or circumstances. We can freeze. We can get kind of stunned like a deer in headlights and not know which direction to go. Or we can submit, sort of slash collapse, like, okay, forget it. I don't know what to do, and I'm going to pull the covers over my head. So when you start changing how you breathe in yoga practice, it moves you from fight, flight, freeze, and submit into capacity, into mindfulness, and into our willingness to feel something like intuition emerging without having to go through intellect. It's like your body intelligence and your heart intelligence, they're already in there. And when when they're not being beaten down, they can verbalize themselves into your thoughts and your, your body narrative. And we do get kind of almost like eerie guidance <laughs> like did that just come from my own consciousness my goodness and it's it's so delightful and sometimes surprising to realize that that voice tone that's our intuition is loving wise compassionate good-hearted and the voice tone of shame and self-hatred is definitely not so which one are we going to listen to recovery requires us to listen to the voice tone that's more loving 
and to be compassionate when the voice tone of shame arises. But as soon as a voice tone of shame comes up, the brain will want to go into fight, flight, freeze, or submit against ourselves. And then we have this internalized conflict that's such a struggle. So if we recognize, oh, I'm in that conflict again with myself, and it's about shame and self-hatred and body image issues, if I can change my breathing, in a few moments' time, I can shift from the voice tone of shame to the voice tone of love and kindness towards my very self. And that's a radical act of courage, especially in a culture that tells us not to appreciate our bodies, not to celebrate our body intelligence, but to override it constantly in, in so many various ways. So I have a question. Sure. What if someone is doing yoga and they're doing it out of shame? Like they have somehow, in the same way that you did with um being an athlete and I did with just exercise addiction. What if that's yoga for someone? Is it possible if someone is addicted to yoga and they're still like, I got to do yoga if I want to have my smoothie or whatever. Is there a way that they can continue, if they can channel their energy with yoga and make it help and help them and, and use it as a tool to heal them? Or would they even need to back out of that and go find something else? Like, you know, yeah, that's a great question. It's a really great question because the field of yoga, since I started practicing yoga, it has so totally expanded. And of course, it's been westernized, so it gets usurped into our media and body image culture. And it gets used for creating an adrenaline high rather than increasing vitality and compassion in the body. It increases adrenaline and sometimes it increases stress or competition. People go to yoga studios now wearing clothing that <laughs> didn't exist 25 years ago. And with uh, body image issues that we didn't consider 25 years ago when we first started practicing yoga. And they also go into the yoga studio with a competitive attitude sometimes. I'm not saying across the board that happens, but it does happen. And if you're in a yoga studio environment in which you feel like your competitive body image issues, your inner dialogue is still ruthless or unkind, you might be in the wrong yoga class. It might not be that yoga itself isn't helping you, but the class that you're taking might not be suited to your recovery. I actually have a, a handout that I give to professionals who are going to refer to yoga classes. How are they going to refer the client to the right yoga class? I can share that with you and you can share it with your readers if you want to or your um, uh, blog audience. And some of the questions to ask are like, what is the teacher's dialogue about the yoga practice? Do they consistently say to the students, can you go just a bit farther? Can you do more? Can you take it to the next level? And those questions are being asked with the expectation that the student would say, sure, yeah, I'll go to the next level because something at the next level is going to be better than what I'm now experiencing. And yet if the teacher rather is asking questions like, as you listen to your body, what might it say to you? Or as you feel into this particular stretch, and you soften your resistance to sensation that might be a little uncomfortable. Those questions are more internally motivated. And so how we practice the yoga makes a significant difference. It's not just that we're practicing, but how are we practicing? And that's where, as I was saying before we started the recording, those essential life skills that yoga is teaching us, we learn them in the body, on the yoga mat, in the classroom with other people also taking the risk to learn these life skills. And that's how life starts to get transformed through yoga. 
more significantly in the inner dialogue than in the outer shape of the pose. And speaking about these life skills, can you tell us what the four essential life skills are and how they can be applied to our lives? Yeah, and and they are actually, the four life skills go in order. Like you learn one and then you can learn the second one and then you can learn the third one. And the first one is most appropriate to the beginner taking up a yoga practice or to somebody who's going to change their relationship to their yoga practice. Maybe they have a long time experience of yoga, but now they're going to change their inner dialogue about their yoga practice. So the first essential life skill is called getting in the gap. And gap is, is capital G, capital A, capital P, and it stands for getting grounded. That is, where do you place your attention? And how do you do that? What do you choose to focus on? So getting grounded is first. Then paying attention to the choice you made again and again until with consistent attention we arrive at a feeling of being present. So P stands for present. So getting in the gap, I recommend to my students that they start with becoming mindful of really neutral sensation. Sensation that's not likely to cause a body image reaction or a competition reaction. Sensation that isn't likely to kind of spark their emotional reaction to something. So it could be becoming present of the way your feet make contact with the ground. And choosing to ground your attention on feet making contact with the yoga mat again and again until you become more present. That slows down the mind and moves the brain out of fight, flight, freeze, submit into present moment awareness. Now we could choose going to where the feet make contact with the ground or we can choose the sensation of the breath in the belly but sometimes the sensation of the breath in the belly is way too provocative. If somebody has a significant disdain for their belly or we're not accustomed to letting the belly breathe, that can be like intermediate to advanced mindfulness practice, which is why we start with things like footprints or feeling the air temperature against the skin of the body. Those are generally more neutral sensations to learn getting in the gap. And then we start practicing the second skill is called getting comfortable feeling uncomfortable. And people, I often say to my students, well, of course, we've all practiced being really uncomfortable, like after a binge or from chronic restriction. We know how to be uncomfortable. We know how to withstand that discomfort. I'm not talking about that discomfort. Getting comfortable feeling uncomfortable means feeling the discomfort required of us to grow and evolve. And so sometimes that means getting comfortable, feeling uncomfortable about feeling the body or feeling an emotion without having to numb it or feeling the joy of overcoming an urge to binge and getting to that elation state. We say, wow, I didn't do it. And getting comfortable feeling that because sometimes it's in the process of becoming more joyful or more expansive that we start to feel really ill at ease, like Am I allowed to feel like this? Am I okay feeling expansive? When is the other shoe going to drop? What's going to happen next? And in that flush of discomfort about feeling tremendous, we practice getting comfortable feeling uncomfortable. We also practice getting comfortable feeling uncomfortable when we start to realize that life has been painful and we have some things to grieve in the process of recovery. We all have things to grieve. The losses that we experienced in the self-harm that we've done. Grieving is 
is just one of the acts of recovery to, to really come back to your wholeness and your heart. And then we practice the third essential life skill, which is called moving from love, not shame. And just like the first two, you can practice this on your yoga mat, in your body, in real time. When you're doing downward dog pose, for example, or sun salutations, and you realize that that inner voice tone of shame just crept back in, that's where you can counter it, right there in the body with a deep breath and a mental shift into looking at yourself through the lens of kindness, not through the lens of condescension. And then the fourth life skill is called personal buoyancy. And it essentially means maintaining your resilience and your well-being just enough through the daily tasks of personal buoyancy so that we aren't so often collapsed into our self-harm behaviors simply because we're dehydrated or we haven't slept well or we, we forgot to experience nature or we overlooked the necessity of keeping our, our resilience on our radar screen. So personal buoyancy actually refers to the seven daily tasks you can do to maintain your well-being. And they're really simple, fundamental things that all physical bodies need, like, again, hydration and deep rest. And if we're not tending to that, we're a lot more collapsible when shame arises. And we're more likely to self-medicate when discomfort comes up. And we're less likely to be able to stay in the present moment because the brain will be scanning for whatever emergency is about to happen. So personal buoyancy is the fourth life skill. Is that thorough enough? <laughs> yeah. No, those are those are awesome. I love all those. And um, I think your book is really helpful. Like if people want to learn more about these different four, because you go into great detail and the types of poses that um, go along well with working on these different life skills. Um, so I want to talk about um, the buoyancy, because I think that one is really important for maintaining the changes that you've been developing. Yeah. What are some of the the practices you can do besides yoga on a daily basis that help with developing this buoyancy? Yeah, and buoyancy is actually a felt state. That's the other cool thing about practicing yoga is that you don't walk out with an adrenaline high, which we do get from exercise. And by the way, I'm a bike commuter. I love riding my bike. I love the cardiovascular aspect of that. I love having the wind in my face, and I have a, a little dog. He's about 30 pounds, and he's in his dog cart behind my bike. He's attached mm -hmm. to my bicycle, and it's kind of a scene here in Portland riding your bike in traffic. It's a great city for bike commuting, but I really love that, and it's a very different feeling than having my yoga practice. Mm -hmm. The outcome of riding my bike is like this rush of energy and clarity and elation that I really quite enjoy, and the elation I get from my yoga practice is a little bit more like consciousness and awe and expansiveness. And so when I put together the, the system of personal buoyancy, I was looking at it as what does the body need? And in those essentials include, this is on a concept in the book called the body dashboard, as if you had a dashboard for your car, you just have one for the body as well. And so the body dashboard includes hydration, which is really fundamental to our musculoskeletal and digestive health, as well as our brain function. So staying hydrated throughout the course of a day, that's an act of self-care that a lot of my students start with. When I'm helping somebody to recover from disordered eating patterns, I don't take away their current strategies first. My first aim is to build new strategies into their existing system, like 
Can you hydrate even though you're also binging? Can you hydrate even though you're also compulsively exercising? Can you demonstrate to yourself that you're worthy enough of self-care by hydrating? And then we add in using deep rest as a science like sleep hygiene. When do you go to bed? When do you wake up? Well, how do you set up your sleep routine so you actually feel rested when you wake up in the morning? And can you have mindful moments during the day where you're just in the present moment enough that your mind is resting, not thinking? So the second body dashboard thing is deep rest. And then keeping your blood sugar balanced, which is a really important thing, especially when the women's bodies, our bodies can have so many challenges with hormones and the endocrine system is much more innervated by your right brain than your left brain. And your right brain is the one more prone to anxiety. So if you consider the relationship from right brain to endocrine to hormones and um, blood sugar imbalances, of course we sometimes feel frantic about eating sugar. We're trying to fix something. And it's at a biochemical, physiological urge that the brain is asking for something. But if we balance our blood sugar throughout the course of the day, we're going to feel less frantic about certain foods. And appetites are going to feel more balanced too. And then we have a few more. One is called right brain activities. And that means that you're soothing the right brain, the one that's more prone to anxiety and also more prone to shame. So to soothe your right brain is like gardening, painting, petting the cat, doing things that don't have uh, an agenda and don't require logic or linear thinking. So things that feel very um, almost like childlike, like swinging on the swing set and feeling the legs pumping the swing and the air against your face. And that's We're just nourishing the right brain's ability to be in the present moment without thinking of past and future. For me, that's also gardening. And I, I'm a watercolor painter, so I use my watercolor time too. And then we have taking care to raise your heart rate at some point every day, a little cardiovascular flush, so you're kind of cleaning the pipes. We call that heart rate up. And having, for some of my students, just having a walk around the block, if they've been more prone to like hiding out, covering the body with the bed covers and sleeping or getting immersed in too much TV or they've been binging to the point of lethargy, can they just go for a walk around the block to clear the pipes, to freshen the brain, to, to get some activity where there was stagnancy? And then one of my favorites is called elimination. <laughs> elimination means the obvious, I like to say. I like going to the bathroom on time because your body gives you the signal rather than sticking with email or other uncomfortable circumstances until you think, okay, now I can go pee. But so elimination means the obvious plus a daily experience of laughing or crying. And by crying, I don't mean crying like in despair, though sometimes that happens. I also mean crying like in the beauty of the, the experience of life. And I give my students specific videos to see. Those are on YouTube. And they can watch them and they're so inspiring and they make the, the possibility of poignancy and awe and then you just get these goosebumps and, and you, you cry just enough that you feel like, oh yeah, I'm human again. Here I am, I'm not blocking my emotions. So that one's called elimination. And the last one is having time in nature every day. And for some people, that means looking at nature, just seeing it out their window. And others, it means actually being in the trees or being at the river or feeling the sun against their face. And we are a part of nature. It's, we're not here with nature as like our object. 
It's not our materialistic possession. We are a part of nature. Our bodies come from the natural world and they return to the natural world. So realizing that on a daily basis makes our life feel less small and reminds us how precious it is. So those are on the body dashboard and I actually have icons and illustrations for that to remind people what those are. I love all of those because I think that like experiencing emotion and becoming one or at least indulging in nature and um, the elimination, all of those just help you get back in touch with your intuition on a day-to-day basis. And it's easier to start eating intuitively once you start living intuitively in such a way that you become a human again. Like you could do all those things that you just listed every single day and not have to put in a strenuous workout ever again. Like that is a fully functioning human being right there, being able to do all those things every day. And I mean, you don't have to focus on every single one of them, but when you can start incorporating most of those things as often as you can, you realize how precious life really is experiencing that emotion and like being able to just go for a walk and call the activity portion of the day like you know that's it that's all you really need to do because I know a lot of individuals might hear this and think okay I'm gonna do all those things plus my two-hour workout but (laughs) that's not the goal the goal is to be able to do these things and sit in it and feel how it feels for your body to do these things every day and not have to have that workout piled on top of all of these things. Like if it brings you joy and you love it, that's totally cool. That's not what we're saying is not to do that. But if it's something that you're doing out of control, finding your intuition first will help you to um, untighten that grasp you have on your need for control because everything is okay. If that makes sense. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think living intuitively is something that we're not conditioned into. And so there's two comments I want to make. One is for the person who doesn't know if she or he has an issue with their exercise or food rituals, we might ask the question, is this affecting my relationships? Like, mm-hmm. does it take up so much time that I don't have time for my friendships? Or is this affecting my sleep? Do I binge before I go to bed at night and then I can't sleep? Is this affecting my self-care? Is this affecting my self-respect? And if the answer to those questions is yes, it's affecting those things negatively, then we might say, I'm going to consider the possibility that I have a problem here and that my life could be different and not ruled by the dictatorship of the inner critic that says, I must work out for two hours or I must eat only these foods, only these good foods and not those bad foods and If we keep setting ourselves up with that kind of conditioning, we won't discover our intuition through that. And to live from intuition is to also live from love. It's it's in the lens of yoga that we see love is the most central experience of who we are. We might say love or joy or contentment. And from that central experience of love, we experience our intuition coming into action. But most of us got blocked somewhere way back in life from intuition. And we also had love obscured. For myself, that was through the the environment that I was raised in, in which my mother was relatively depressed and had a very flat affect. I couldn't derive nurturance from her. And my father is a Vietnam vet, and he did struggle. When he came home, he struggled with anger and Um, unpredictability and his own now we would call it PTSD there wasn't a word for that at the time 
So in the early environment that we're raised, we all make strategies for how we're going to figure out life. And my strategy happened to include managing my body so it would not be a problem for anybody else. And that's not intuitive living. That's living from like management and control and so on. And it's very painful. And I, I do see for a lot of women that I work with and I saw for myself, I had to go through a period of childlike uh, rage or um, despair when I realized fundamentally I did not know how to feed myself. Like when I came to that realization that what I was doing was definitely not working, and yet I didn't know, I had never learned how to just feed and nourish my body, I felt profoundly angry like a two-year-old. <laughs> just like, oh my God, this situation is terrible. And how could I miss this essential thing in life? I was like 20 years old and I didn't know how to feed myself. And then I was 25 years old and well into my recovery, but still struggling with, I don't know how to feel my feelings. How did I miss this? And some of that outrage or anger, I think, is, is important because if you're watching when children are learning a new thing at two or three years old, they experience the frustration that goes along with learning. And that frustration is like the brain is working on something that's so exciting and is about to be so tangible, but it's not quite yet. And so if that frustration is age appropriate and stage appropriate for their learning, it's also going to be appropriate for our recovery that we sometimes feel overwhelmed that, wow, I missed figuring out how to feed myself. And now I feel confused, despairing, and angry about it. But soon I'm going to feel competent and capable and loving about it. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you because I find you really interesting. And I know you've been doing this for 26 years, yoga therapy, but you're hitting a very different like you're hitting a lot of people with this you're hitting home a lot of people with this but also you're connecting and relating to an entirely different group than what I typically do sometimes and I think your voice is really special and really important right now because people in in your in um from your generation probably have similar struggles but not many people speak up about it you know people who have had parents that have gone um to war or have had PT, what's it called? PTSD? PTSD, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it's really important that you do what you're doing and that this book was written and that you're speaking on all these podcasts because people that have similar experiences from you, some of them still don't know what the heck is going on and they need right. that, they need that hope and they need to know like it's not too late. There are still ways that you can start to nourish your mind right now and to move from shame to love. So thank you for doing what you do. Yeah, and absolutely. I, I, I'm, I'm 46 years old. I'll be 47 in August. And my recovery is absolutely solid and fundamental to my life. I was told I would live with my behaviors for the rest of my life and I would just be managing them. That was not what I wanted. I wanted to be really free of those behaviors but part of my recovery that was essential, and this is I cover this also in my book, when I say hunger, hope, and healing, hope is an important factor because we've caused ourselves to lose hope so many times. To regain a sense of hope in our capacity means how are we going to do that? We're going to do it with new skills, but also really important that we build a sense of community, that we have a new language culture, we have new body narratives, we share more openly what our feelings and struggles are. 
but we also share the celebrations. So when, when people like yourself have these podcasts and blogs and we're changing the language culture and the body narrative together collectively, we're opening the possibility for people who right now are isolated and don't realize it. But they might hear a little glimpse of your podcast or read something in my book and have a moment of hope and say, could I think differently? And we're catalyzing that possibility by having these conversations. Yeah, exactly. So we are coming up to the end here. Um, two last things we're going to do. First of all, I would like for you to give everyone your information where they can connect with you, your website. And of course, I will have these links on the show notes for um, episode 57, MBM 57. And then we'll have a quick, uh, quick fire round. Very easy questions, nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> Just your favorite things. Um, but before we do that quick fire round, where can we find you at? You can find me on my website, which is sarahjoyyoga.com. There are two Ys in that website. Sarah Joy ends in a Y. Yoga starts with a Y.com. And also there is a Hunger, Hope, and Healing Facebook page. We'll be starting a free book club in the fall for anybody who's been reading or interested in reading the book and wants ongoing support, understanding how to put the book into practice in their lives. And I also teach at Kripalu Yoga Center, which is in Lenox, Massachusetts, and at Brighton Bush Hot Springs, which is here in the Oregon area in Detroit, Oregon. And I'm available by email, which you can get off of my website, sarajayoga.com. Wonderful. And again, I will have all those links on the show notes, maddiemoon.com slash mbm57. And are you ready for the quickfire round? Yeah. Okay, awesome. So if you were to have a last meal, what would your last meal be? Oh, that's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it'd have to include kale, chocolate, and red wine. Oh, I love that. <laughs> All the phytonutrients. Okay, um, what is the current book you're loving or reading? Oh, I'm reading a book by um, Bessel van der Kolk called The Body Keeps the Score. Body Keeps it's the phenomenal. Score. The Body Keeps the Score. It's actually about PTSD and trauma and how to recover from trauma. So. Oh, fascinating. Okay, yeah. what is your go-to piece of fruit? Mango. Oh, mine too. Oh my gosh, mango obsessed. Um, Go-to band or artist? I'm really big on Martin Sexton, actually. Do you know who he is? I I don't. It sounds kind of familiar, but I can't think of anything right now. Yeah, Martin Sexton. People can look him up. He's in recovery, and he sings about it really beautifully, and he's... He's very creative and provocative in his music. I I love it. Wonderful. I'll look him up. Um, Favorite animal? Oh, my dog, of course. Duh. <laughs> my personal dog. That's a good answer. Um, favorite color? Green. What is your way to distress, your favorite way to distress, besides yoga? Because we know that's number one. Well, gardening is really big for me. Mm. Weeding the garden is like weeding my mind. Gotcha. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay. And the very last one, It is. what is your favorite city? Varanasi, India. Oh, why is that? Well, you can get your mind totally blown in Varanasi. You see life from a totally different perspective. And my husband and I got married there spontaneously. Oh, <laughs> so. that is so romantic. <laughs> yeah, it was. that's where they make the wedding saris. The Indian wedding saris are made from six yards of silk fabric. And we were at the silk uh, factory. We said, let's get married now. And so they, they sewed the sari blouse onto me and they wrapped me up in six yards of um, sari fabric, which we purchased. We own this wedding sari and we got married there in Varanasi. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That is so cute. 
Okay, that is so cute. <laughs> okay, so thank you so much for joining us on the show today. This was it was such a pleasure to have you. And you're welcome. I'm gonna recommend everyone goes to get this book, of course, but also to join that Facebook group because I think that's a really cool thing you're doing, and it'll help a lot of people along the way. Thank you, and thanks for the work you're doing in the world. It's really terrific. Thank you so much. We'll have to have you again another time. Look forward to it. Bye. Take care.